Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. 2023 is upon us, and with the new year, we thought that we would take today's show to look at issues on the horizon for 2023 in the technology policy space. To help us as we look into this crystal ball, I'm joined today by Shane Tews. I am a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I follow have been working on tech policy for 25 years. Shane is many things. Among them, she is a technology policy commentator. She has been working in this area for a long time in both industry and government, and she is also a Nebraskan. I just got to put that in there right away. Very happily born and raised Cornhusker, even though I left after high school. Plus, she's always a thoughtful person. Person that I enjoy speaking with. Our conversation today is going to touch on a wide range of topics, from broadband deployment to antitrust law and Section 230, to the CHIPS Act and supply chain issues and onshoring of technology-related manufacturing, to cybersecurity and privacy issues, to ChatGPT and artificial intelligence and cool things that Shane saw when she was recently at the annual Consumer Electronics Show. It's going to be a fun discussion. I look forward to having you along with us for it. This is a busy time for technology in a policy. Uh, Is that right, Shane? Yeah, there's a lot of people who don't really understand how things work that have a lot of ideas on how they want it to work, which will break things. Let's just talk about the year ahead in tech. We've got the new Congress that was just sworn in. We, after some non-technology related drama, we got a new Speaker of the House. Um, and some of the first things that the new Congress, the new House has already done relate to technology. So we have to talk about broadband policy, antitrust policy, Section 230, supply chain issues, the the CHIPS Act, uh, encryption and privacy, artificial intelligence, and I am 100% sure that there are more things that we could talk about. So let's just start with some of the things that we talk about frequently on this podcast, broadband, antitrust, and Section 230. Looking into 2023, what do you see on the horizon for broadband? So with broadband, we're finally going to be able to spend some of the money that we've been talking about for so long. There's multiple programs, which I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast before, between NTIA's BEAD program, the Affordable Connectivity Program, which one of the challenges with that is you you basically had a cost shifting there. You had people that were uh, receiving cell phones that were getting a low-cost process fee that they were getting with the carriers. Then the government stepped in and said, we're worried about people during COVID, so now we're going to le- we're gonna fund this program. And a lot more people were, in theory, we're going to jump on board. Basically, what they found is people have now cost shifted, and now the government's paying for that. However, now there's an expectation that the government's going to keep paying for it. So a lot of the carriers are concerned that the government's going to drop out on the funding, and they have are going to have to make the adjustments for whether or not they're going to continue on this space with the the low income. Um, so that's an ACP challenge coming our way, which uh, there definitely be some work on that this year. There's multiple programs. USDA, the Treasury Department has almost a replicate that they're doing over between what they're doing at the NTIA, which is all just on. You know, are, how many people are we trying to get connected? Are we saying we're connecting everyone? Then what are the metrics to look at 
which has all these maps that people keep talking about on affordability and can they get connected? And then once they have the ability to get connected, can they afford to get connected? Yeah, you make a really important point there. And as I've been talking to folks about the BEAD program in particular, one of the things that has been emphasized that I believe NTIA is going to be taking pretty seriously as they review applications is sustainability in the program. So looking and reviewing uh, applications to see not just are we going to be giving you enough money for you to build out the networks, but is there a business plan that will allow you to be weaned off of this money and actually bring enough revenue in to cover the operating costs and the capital costs over time of these programs, which for too long, the broadband and telephone subsidy programs have really been just a faucet to keep the networks running, as opposed to an investment to get them built out in a sustainable sort of way. Right. I've been talking to people in different states because it's so interesting which states really have their act together and are talking about it like an investment in the state. Uh, the gentleman is doing it in the state of Louisiana. Beneath is doing a fantastic job. He understands and is using, you know, a combination of maps and uh, doing things to help the locals that are making the decision, the local government, that, you know, here are the different buckets of money. Here are the ways that different buckets of money can be used and how you can layer them so you can see where the gaps are between, you know, using something that might be in the RUS funding. They use that and then therefore they don't need to use the funding that's coming from NTIA. I know I'm talking yeah. acronyms. So RUS, Rural Utility Service. Yes, exactly. Uh, and then we have the challenge of the um, administration really put a push to do fiber first. And fiber is amazing. I mean, I love fiber. But you know, being from Nebraska, I understand there are areas where fiber just is not affordable. And so you want to look at fixed wireless. You want to look at other things like satellite, which is, you know, is coming in. And is it perfect? Is it as good as fiber? It's no, but it's pretty damn close compared to nothing. Mm -hmm. I know you've written on that and I appreciate all the work that you've done in that space. But so there's a lot of things that we need to put into the thought metrics as we're going forward. I also talked to a former grade school colleague of mine, uh, who is said that one of the things that happened in the you know the area around Lincoln with um, COVID is people were seeing how far they could push out, maybe move back to the family farm during COVID because they wanted to you know be closer to their family. And he said the ring of where they would end up extending really had to do with connectivity, which I thought was really interesting. They they got to a certain point and maybe you would go visit and hang out with your you know your parents or your dad or your grandparents, but maybe your aunt and uncle were just a little too far out because you really were in the, you were not getting any connection when you're there and you couldn't work from there. So um, we know we've had a moment of reality with that. Plus we have all these new entities that are online. I was just listening to Roger Entner talk about how six year olds now it's an average. I mean they just they just hand them phones, which has all kinds of policy implications we should be thinking about. But it is interesting that it's becoming you know, ubiquitous mobile part of the economy and that people just have them and it's, it's expected that they're going to, you know, have them as part of their, their use for a daily basis. That's uh, such a interesting and rural and Nebraska specific point. We're very concerned about the flight from rural to the cities and connectivity can help possibly, probably not reverse that, but slow it down and create greater opportunity to move back, as you say, to the family farm. And another really, on the fiber first point, important issue when we're talking about agriculture and precision ag, when we're talking about fiber, we're talking about funding fiber to the farm. 
not out into the fields. Right. Um, so if we're using something that is a terrestrial cable-based, as a physical wire-based technology, the landowner then needs to incur the cost of wireless infrastructure on the farm to get the signal out into the field. But if we rely instead on wireless last mile to get the signal to the farm, well, we've just built out a technology that has the ability to cover the fields and cover other buildings uh, on the farm. Uh, so fiber is really high speed. It has a lot of advantages. But when we're thinking about the total cost of ownership, we should be thinking about, are we creating costs, uh, not just equipment costs, but maintaining the equipment and upgrading the equipment and maintaining cybersecurity of their equipment and all those costs that the individual, the landowner, the farm owner might not understand that they're going to be expected to incur just by having a high speed fiber uh, to their house. And I always wonder sometimes if the people that are designing it, and I love that John Deere has gotten very engaged in this because, you know, like irrigation and fertilization are so interesting and they're getting much more capable to do it with, you know, a combination of drones and just sensors. So you don't over water or over fertilize certain areas, which is better for the, you know, ecosystem altogether. But you don't need that real time all the time. I mean, you need a sense of what's going on, but having a little bit of lag in that is not going to kill the entire process. Mm -hmm. Yep. We we run the risk of turning this into a conversation entirely, entirely about broadband. Uh, I just have to say, I love you the maps for those who have not there's a lot of interesting things, but our friends over the Technology Policy Institute go take a look at their maps because their maps are amazing if you care about that. Or give me a call. If you uh, want to know more, we had Sarah O oh on to talk about their mapping efforts, uh, nice. I believe back over the summer. Yeah. She's fantastic. So let, let's combine next topic antitrust in section 230. Boy, oh boy, Shane, what's no. going on here? The problem is that people do combine them and they should not. The only combination between section 230 and competition or antitrust is that people are mad about one thing and so they're they're lashing out by using the other so that you have people like amy klobuchar and people that they're well she, you know she's a little bit of a special case but you know these people that are very upset about the fact that content was either taken down or was not kept up or there were you know some people got what they thought was special treatment i've walked through this with all of the tech companies to see how it actually works, especially around the, we were concerned during the um, elections, you know, we're, what we were going to see. And people forget that, like, you have trained your devices to your likes and dislikes, especially in social media. And so that is one part of the challenge. Now, there, there are multiple things going on in content and Section 230. I'm very concerned about uh, we're seeing much more about child sex exploitation. And there are, we need to work on the laws. Section 230 is my about my ability to put information out there. It is not about how I can behave. And so we need to start separating that and be much more clear about what laws dictate what happens in the outcome of certain things. There's there's certain Omegle um, Mother Jones just did a whole piece on this. And you know, this guy is just down in Florida hiding behind Section 230, letting horrible things happen to children. So we need we need to work on that part of it. But that does not mean that we need to trash section 230 we need to be very thoughtful about how we are managing content going forward now that's content which is completely different than competition and antitrust and what has happened is these people that are mad about content decided they're going to get their anger out by going after the major tech companies and you know only threaten and you know them with federal trade commission rulings how they were going to uh, manage mergers and acquisitions putting these arbitrary numbers out there that said, if you are at this threshold, you are going to have to go in front of the Department of Justice for a lot of things. 
What was interesting is one of their targets was still called Facebook when they started. It became meta, and their number dropped below the threshold of the Senate bill, at least. I, I'm, I think the House and Senate bill had the same threshold. So we're going to have another year of explaining this. Now, to put layer on top of this, we have the uh, Europeans coming in with the Digital Markets Act, which their idea is of similar ilk to what the Senate Judiciary Committee has been up to. And um, well, I don't think we're going to the problem in the House anymore, where they want to punish big tech for being good, candidly. Big tech's very good at what it does. Maybe they need to be a little more, have a better tuned ear to what the politicians are concerned about. Um, I loved on, I'm a big Stratechery fan, and I was listening to Ben Thompson talk to two guys from the West Coast, and they had an interesting take. And this had to do with a lot of things about tech, where they said, we're used to West Coast timing, not East Coast slash Washington timing. Like, you know, by the time something gets to Washington, it th- it's been running and going, I mean, we've had 10 years of amazing success with these tech companies, but they did something that made somebody unhappy, and they're not dealing with that, going back to the content. They're going to crush them by making them go use their levers of government to try to downsize their success. And that's what the Europeans are doing as well. The Europeans are trying to restrain these companies while they hope something comes out of the European soil that will be somehow a competitive nature, or they're going to make them take down the barriers of their what they call self-preferencing, which is suggesting that they utilize a lot of their own technology, which is a lot of why things work well. Even though I am a a huge user of Apple um, physical products, I love Google. I mean, I just, I, I love the way that their things interoperate. They want to make us make them interoperate now with everybody. And there are multiple challenges that go on with that, which is that gets to our challenges of privacy, uh, data, just data processing altogether, interoperability. They're going to, you know, this idea that all messaging apps should be able to talk to each other. Well, then why don't we just go fully Chinese model? And, you know, I mean, that doesn't make any sense on multiple levels. Plus, it causes privacy. It causes cybersecurity challenges. The whole idea of sideloading, where, which is when they're saying that your phone should basically show up now as a blank device and there should be no app store and you can put anything on it. It just will become a mobile trash can if they let that happen. So that's what I'm talking about when I say I'm very worried that, you know, people are mad about one thing. And so they're going to try to trash where we are and and slow down innovation. Those are not good ways to be using our regulatory or our legislative process. Looking at uh, how things are shaping up in Congress, so last Congress, we had a number of antitrust bills that were proposed. Very few of them got through. Senator Klobuchar's ICOA was probably the highest profile um, piece of legislation. It, it wasn't enacted. What do you see the current Congress doing? And we should separate this out both in terms of, do you see more legislation being introduced? And I, I think that it bears note, you kind of have aired to this already. The last six to 12 months haven't been great for big tech market cap. So it's harder to identify just in terms of size of companies, big tech as the bogeyman that the way that they had been in last year's legislation. So do you see that legislation being introduced? And then if it is being introduced, does any of it have any chance of being enacted by the current split Congress? So I'm going to add another layer into that too, which is the Federal Trade Commission. So I'll get to that in a second. What we had last year was we had a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, which is why this was a bigger threat of actually going to the president's desk and being signed was the House had a version of the bill. The Senate was trying to keep their version as similar as possible so they could eventually come into the same language, which means they wouldn't have to go to conference. They never go to conference anymore. And then get this to, they were concerned about this uh, 
coming or the most recent election cycle. So they wanted to get it on the president's desk before the end of the year. So there was a huge rush for that. The the new House being Republican is going to have a couple different things. This is not the priority that it was for the previous group. I do think you're going to see Klobuchar reintroduce this bill. Um, She does have a a Republican that's working with her, which is Marsha Blackburn. Marsha Blackburn does some great work on digital economy when it comes to intellectual property. The work that she does on children's online safety is fantastic. I just don't agree with where she's headed with. She's got a a hard bend. She's very angry about the app store. And this, there's a whole another sub Sorry, everything everything in Washington has 18 layers deep on it. <laughs> is it's really, you know, there's this whole fight. You know, people think that they're just going after Apple and Google because they have this altruistic idea of not having any a delineation of, you know, what goes on your, you're having this blank slate they're going to give you. This is really epic behind all this. It doesn't take much to scratch through this to be like, there's a bunch of people that don't want to pay the 30% fee. And when when you was, say epic, you're referring to the company epic. Yes, the, the the gaming company. So the gaming companies were the ones who created the 30%. Actually, it was started in the, or I was reading about this over the holidays, uh, you know, but it was, it started uh, during the the late 80s, early 90s. So it was actually the gaming companies that started the 30% to be able to get onto their gaming platform. And the idea was, and their big challenge back then was, you know, did you, you only wanted to use your cartridges, like really hardware driven. And now we're seeing all kinds of fun stuff go on in that space. And so just keep that in the back of your head. When you, Whenever you see somebody really going after something, especially on legislation, there's always another side, right? And so it is epic. And behind them is actually Microsoft, who's also in front of the Federal Trade Commission. So the other part of the stool of the challenge of antitrust and competition is that we have a current chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission who wrote a paper in 2016 that said that Amazon should be broken apart. And that is her, I mean, if you read the paper, you're like, it's a point of view, it's interesting. Not a lot of, for those of us who are big fans of the Chicago school uh, when it comes to competition law, not not a lot of there there. And so you, uh, you see them wanting to make a major change in how antitrust works in this country, but they are only wanting to apply it to the technology companies. And so again, it's that hard bend. And since we've watched the technology industry in the last 10 years really raise innovation lines and the economy in the United States, why we want the the government wants to tear them down, it just seems like a very bad idea besides the fact it is a bad idea. So we'll see the Federal Trade Commission coming in on this on multiple levels, and we have lots of interesting cases to be watching over there. Yeah, and for listeners, I'll just uh, promise you we will have more discussion of the Federal Trade Commission. I am confident. Just last week, they announced a really big proposed rule relating to uh, non-compete clauses, not necessarily uh, technology-related inherently, but a lot of technology connections, and they have proposed rules relating to commercial surveillance and privacy. So there, there are a lot of topics there that will be really big moving into or continuing into 2023. There's plenty to talk about. It's one of those places that you and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. <clears throat> a lot of Americans don't think about the Federal Trade Commission. They just think anything with commission, they think they're all the same. Uh, and But there's a lot going on there. Is Section 230 going to survive this Congress? We, we could also ask, is Section 230 going to survive the Supreme Court? But we, we've uh, right. recently so done two, say, two episodes uh, discussing the pending Section 230 litigation in the Supreme Court. How will it fare in Congress? Um, I would say it's a parallel path. I think that part of what the people that are going to be going before the Supreme Court, which is basically Google and Twitter, and then you have the two net choice cases, it sounds like you've talked about them, for the state of Florida and Texas, is... 
is the Supreme Court or is the court system the best way to decide if this law that was passed in 1996 should be the ongoing way that we handle you know, information on the Internet? Or should we be, as I was saying, delineate the actions and the behaviors of certain people and think about how we maybe augment parts of Section 230 if it needs it? Maybe it doesn't, depending on how we look at the laws. Do we need to rewrite old analog laws to match our digital behavior? Or should we be creating new laws? And that is where Congress needs to come in. I am hopeful, I would like it to be Congress. And I think actually there are probably people that work in the Supreme Court, maybe some of the justices themselves, that would really prefer that Congress would do this as well, but they don't see them stepping up and not doing it in a way that is in a rational fashion, realizing that the internet hopefully is here to stay. And we should have rules and laws that guide us through that, understanding where what has been happening and where we're heading. And I am concerned that what the Supreme Court may come out with may be taking us the wrong direction. Mm. One of the first things that the new Republican House majority did was to announce a investigation into government censorship of internet platforms and online speech. There isn't uh, enough control that the Republicans have in Congress for that probably to go anywhere all that substantive, though it could be a very large uh draw a lot of attention. But does that signal any potential interest between Republicans in the House and Senate who are concerned about online censorship issues and put Democrats in the Senate and House who are concerned about the power of online platforms that could manifest as actual legislation relating to online speech? So I think part of this, if you go back to recent history, is We're seeing more companies have trust and safety officers, which I think is a good thing, which most trust and safety officers work on best practices. They're not actually working on baseline, you know, they're not worried about litigation so much as making sure that they have a um, a level that people understand and they move forward with that. So then the question we have is some of the things that have happened in the last, let's say, four years people are upset about really might have been a moment of bad judgment of a moderator who had to make a judgment call. And those are the things that I think come most into question when you actually deep dive into a lot of this documentation is, yeah, maybe they leaned a little on the scale on something, but it wasn't a, was it a pattern behavior or was it something that actually was outright, you know, trying to shut down a particular group of people? And I think when I walk through most of those documents, I see an occasional bad call, but I don't see huge patterns of behavior, even though the CNNs and the Fox Newses of the world certainly want us to believe that. I don't know that we have the evidence to actually back that up when you actually go through the treasure trove of things that we've drug out of Facebook and Meta and and Google is that, especially in the case of Google, you find that we, you know, I've talked to them and they're like, when it comes to this, like you, you've told them that you like puppies, you hate cats. Like your cats, you're not interested in. Don't show me stuff about cats. Show me all the things in the world about puppies, puppy collars, ways to, you know, make sure... So the fact that Google shows me more and more things about puppies and just, you know, me or my category of people that, and you can go online and you can check all these things that you have put into the algorithm, which is driving it. So, I mean, I know it's hard to get to, you have to go a couple layers in, but it's all there, but there's a reason why I'm seeing more of A and less of B. And I have taught the algorithm to do that. And I think there's just a case of some people don't really understand the technology. And so the inference things onto it, Versus do we have really a group of people that hate a particular segment of society and they are going to punish them by cleaving off their ability to talk to humanity? I don't see the evidence that's there. Mm -hmm. I know that people feel that way, but people have some crazy thoughts these days. 
Okay, let's turn to more straight-up industrial policy. The CHIPS Act and supply chain. Will we have international trade by the end of 2023? Well, what's interesting, and right now when we're recording this, we have the Prime Minister of Japan here in Washington. He's doing a G7 tour. And what he is trying to do, and we're going to see this be a major theme in 2023, is finding trusted partnerships. So we have a very strong suspicion around China these days. It's not the people. We are finding the people of China. It is the government, the CCP, and what they're doing, which gets to this challenge with chips. Uh, One of my colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, Chris Miller, has a fantastic book on called Chip Wars, and it is it really goes through you know the interesting and short history. At the end, I mean, chips have not been around that long. The two major players in chips actually, one was Taiwanese by birth, is Taiwanese, and the other one is uh, mainland Chinese, and they both cut their teeth at Texas Instruments, and so they you know learned how to do all this amazing technology and went up the food chain, and then one of them didn't get the, the top job at TI. And the other one had another reason to leave. And they ended up taking their understanding of the process and moving back to China. So this is where we get this, like we started a lot of this in the United States, but we didn't continue to fund it. And then for a a myriad of reasons, we pushed it all offshore. And part of this was, it goes back to, I remember, you know, being a kid in, you know, college and learning about like, you know, learning all the ins and outs of funds of NAFTA. The whole idea was, if we give the Mexicans reasons to like, we start letting them build cars. They don't need to build get the cars in Detroit to get the you know. Anyway. So we had this whole offshoring. We offshored the entire process. Well, we didn't. We offshored the manufacturing. We kept the intellectual part of it, where we did the design here, mostly in the United States, and the manufacturing went mostly to Asia. There's one component part which has been kind of an, a little secret to watch is that the Dutch make 65 percent of the actual physical equipment it, you have to use, which then gets shipped to China to hmm. then be in the foundries that makes the chips. So uh, what we've heard recently is, you know, we're not going to let them have the main intellectual property f- on how to design the more sophisticated chips, which actually is de- making sure that it doesn't get into our military industrial complex is the key thing. And then the other level is the telecommunication system. You know, we've gone through, and I'm sure you've done several shows on rip and replace. You know, we, the U.S. government, encouraged especially rural carriers to put in the least expensive equipment, which a lot of that was Huawei and ZTE, and now we've decided that that's a problem. So we want them to rip it out, even though the most recent Congress did not fund rip and replace. But there is a challenge of understanding what in the network is actually something that we should be concerned about and what is just hyperbole of China baiting, right? So the fiber doesn't know what it's sending across. It's fiber, right? There are parts in the compute system that we should worry about that are part of the supply chain. Those are the areas where we're upgrading software, and that's where the the squirrels can get in the transom there. That's where we need to be concerned. But there, we need to think about it from an economic perspective. Where are the actual security concerns and where should we be watching after that is the legacy equipment worth even ripping out that's a lot of money to spend on just ripping out equipment replacing it Mm -hmm. and you know is it as we move forward do can we solve this problem as we put more things that watch what's going on with the software and then you know maybe we decide that only very high level sophisticated chips get made in south korea Taiwan, maybe they come back here into all this money that we're spending on industrial policy. Now that we're back into that, uh, in you know the the fabs that are in Texas, Arizona, and um, New York State. One thing that we're starting to see though is now they're especially with Schumer, as he's trying to put in you know roadblocks so only 
equipment can be used that are made by the New York or the Texas firms. That's not necessary, and it's a huge economic burden right now. So we have a lot to work through, and all of us policy dorks will spend a lot of time talking about it. But the the trusted partnerships are where you're going to see a lot of discussion where we're heading in 2023. It feels to me like most of the supply chain attention is on well, I'll call just the manufacturing and the physical stuff, the chips in particular. But the chips run computers that run software that controls everything that the systems do. Software everything supply- Everything with an on button has a chip. Yes. Um, but chips are a lot harder to hack and reprogram than the uh, contents of the memory that tell them what to do. Yes. Um, how much of a concern continuing into 2023 will cybersecurity supply chain issues be? There's the ability, that's, I think you're hitting on a really good topic for us to be more informed, because one of the things that we moved to, especially with 5G and the advent of 5G, is um, white boxing and software-defined networking for our, our network operators, and other industries use a similar model, where the box that you receive is very genericized, and then it's the software that goes on the box that gets to decide how it's going to spend its compute time. So that's where we need to be focusing on where are the danger points in that? There Do there need to be some things that can only, maybe, maybe we've given it too much liberty and we need to make sure that certain boxes can't put software on to do certain things. I mean, there's, there's a lot of good policy discussions that should take place to that because a lot of times what we are doing is really managing and upgrading legacy equipment. And so there's getting to start clean would be ideal. And you would be able to think about this from, uh, uh, you know, making sure that it was it's all in the design. But a lot of times what we're doing is we're toggling on newer equipment, older equipment, and we need to be thinking about where the friction points there. And when does it just make sense in some cases to just tear out what you have if security is your concern and put in a whole new, you know, ample system that has lots of belts and suspenders around security that our older equipment doesn't have. The big news this morning was the FAA had shut down all flights in the United States for a period of hours because one of the electronic safety control systems that they use had a problem and they needed to get it back online. And the first question on every news show that I heard this morning uh, was, is this a cyber attack? Was this caused by some cyber intrusion? Yeah. And the, the answer consistently was no, and I, I don't expect that was either. But it it's just really noteworthy that in the media's conscience, we're at the point now where if an electronic system goes down, if a piece of national infrastructure goes down, one of the first questions everyone jumps to is, was this a cyber attack? I will just pose that to you for for comment. <laughs> right. No, so I, I, I'm just noting a couple things. One thing is that we're learning how antiquated the FAA systems are. And I worked for the Secretary of Transportation right out of college, and we used to go visit the FAA towers every time we had the opportunity. And we actually went to one in Illinois that was still on vacuum tubes. And this is in the early 90s. And IBM was very excited about that because they were keeping that going. But um, so, it, the, again, that's the, we have legacy issues in there, and you have – you know the 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 secretary of transportation uh get you know mayor pete needs to be thinking about this because there's security and safety measures that are now better in the physical environment that we're the faa is not keeping up with and we're seeing this in these antiquated systems that the airlines have to be beholden to so it's you know costing a lot of people i mean this the problem with southwest was the southwest problem right they had their own problems they need to get into but this is system wide the question about is everything going to be a cyber attack, I think Colonial Pipeline was a huge wake-up call. And one thing 
uh, those of us in this space, you know, we are, we're used to these, um, they're called information, uh, ISAC, uh, information system, I forget what ISAC stands for. Um, but they basically, they share information amongst an, uh, a, an industry and there were, I think there's 16 and several of them were very active. The telecom one has always been very active, but the one that was, there was not one specifically to the pipeline industry. And the reason why you want one of these sharing ISACs is that it gives them indemnification to share information with the government. So you always had this challenge of, if I share information as a private entity with the government, will someone come after me? And that is what the way the lawyers think about it. It isn't, you know, I need to share this information because it's a recipe that one of the other pipelines, somebody could be using this exact same attack and it could happen somewhere else, which by the way did. Colonial reported in and worked with the FBI. There was another pipeline that had a similar attack and did not. But since then, they, they were working on tightening up the laws. And we're also seeing with the Department of Homeland Security, where the cybersecurity division is CISA, they're getting much better about sharing information and realizing that they have to, they need this information as fast as possible. It's like it's a, like a medical situation in that mm -hmm. the faster you can get somebody to the hospital, the better the outcome's going to be, right? The faster you can get... Information out to these industries so they can, you know, the one that's having the problem, you need to triage them, but you need to let the other people that are have similar systems know about it so they can start playing defense. And so we, we've worked through the laws that were not on the books, the regulations that needed to be in place so you could work with the government. And then it's interesting, you're seeing the FBI and Department of Homeland Security come in much more on these processes so they can do that sharing mechanism. And we really didn't have the regulations and laws in place until the last couple of years for them to be able to do that. One of the things during COVID also is that there's now a restaurant and entertainment ISAC, which part of that had to do with COVID you know, there were just things that were happening in that industry that were not getting information sharing. And so, you know, you're starting to see that at every level, as well as there's a lot of ransomware that takes place in restaurants and in the entertainment business, uh, because they have, they're all in these systems that, you know, to open the doors, you now everything's cashless, or a lot of things are cashless. And if you come in and shut down a restaurant system, they cannot really open their doors, mm -hmm. or they're going to be serving a lot of things for free. I hadn't planned to ask about this, but um, the mention of ransomware brings it to mind. Is crypto going to be a thing in another year? I think crypto will, I'm going to channel a little of our friend Jim Harper here. Crypto has always it got a little maligned. I mean, I, I think there is certainly a place for crypto. I think that this most recent thing we've gone through with, you know, Sam Bank Bankman Friedman, whatever his name is, he's, um, he, you know, he he's going to set that industry back for quite some time. But I think it means it's definitely getting pushed towards a regulatory element that a lot of crypto was trying to avoid. Crypto is really cool. I mean, it's really interesting. And it brings up a lot of things about our financial industry that no one had really thought through the friction points. I mean, well, they thought through, but they liked it. Like the people that were in the middle that were making the money and the friction points don't want it to go away. But somebody figured out a way around it. Um, you know, blockchain technology works. But at the same time, we can't let this criminal entity or the ability to, I mean, what uh, what they did with um, FTX was just straight up fraud. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that had yep. nothing to do with crypto. Crypto was just the entity that they used to do the fraud. Um, so I think crypto's in it for the long haul, but I think it's had a hard setback and we'll need to do some reset and spend some more time with some regulators and make people feel comfortable about it. 
which is probably but they were trying to get away from that but they kind of put themselves in that own that, that situation yeah and it's i think fascinating to look at how quickly the crypto industry has reached that point i guess bitcoin and blockchain they've been around uh, now going for 15 years or so so they're not entirely new but the big picture crypto industry feels like it's 5 to 7 years old it took big tech a solid 20, 30 years to reach the point where they'd started begging for uh, regulation through their own conduct. Um, so good good on you, crypto industry. You you uh, got the regulators right. to your doorstep uh, faster than big tech. Well, and I feel bad for blockchains. I feel like it got thrown under the bus mm-hmm. for the same reason. And I mean, in the, there's, you know, there's blockchain and there's it's basically a distributed ledger. There's only, but like the, the whole domain name addressing systems on the back of a distributed ledger. Like the reason why you get you know, what you do when you get on the internet is because there's somebody with this very simple yet sophisticated, you know, distributed ledger out there on these tables. And there's these back end computers that think all this and think, you know, think them through and put you to the right spot every time you ask for, you know, gmail.com. And so there's a iteration of that for many other things, the sharing economy. There's so many things that you can do now because you know, if you're using a car sharing service, meaning the car, not like Uber, but you know, there's all these things that happen because you're you're using shared entities that are basically on the back of a, a distributed ledger, and so we don't need to poo-poo them. We like distributed ledgers; they're they're actually very cool technology. Separate them from crypto; they're just a user. Let's turn to the biggest, flashiest of the new technologies, um, which uh, we, oh, we, we have amazingly enough not gotten there yet. Not just artificial intelligence, but chat AI, chat GPT, oh, all right. of these new yeah. uh, generative technologies, Dolly, stable diffusion, all these things I think are going to possibly make us humans irrelevant. Are these going to make us irrelevant? And or perhaps, better. Uh, or better, yes. Um, no, I think they're going to make them, I think, it's, it, we're again at a fulcrum point, and technology brings us here a lot, where we can either become better people or we can become more horrible people. So far, the internet has shown how well people can become horrible people quickly because they can share way too fast things they should not be sharing. But um, I think, and I imagine for you in the university process, you know, you guys are very concerned about, you know, is there ever going to be a student that's fully going to, you know, write their own papers? I've been playing around with chat GPT. And what's interesting is sometimes like, you know, you can you just put information in and it'll just reformat it in a way that, you know, and it'll add things to it. It's because it's it's grabbing it. And other times you you put something in and it just says, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you're like, no one's ever typed anything in about that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so you're seeing a couple different challenges there is people are saying, will it, you know, well, it's definitely upping the game against Google and search. Like, it's just, a, it, it's a different way of looking at information flow. And I love that Microsoft has put all this money in the back end. And, you know, does it make Bing more competitive? I can't tell you the last time I looked at Bing. But if it, you know, if you start to see that it has a, a net positive outcome that's much more efficient and effective, it's great. The challenge is making sure that, you know, we're going back to kind of best practices, like we're not becoming a cheating society because nobody ever writes a paper again. I've read several Twitter uh, threads on this and I haven't tried it yet. They were saying that you can put all of your notes into it and it'll reorganize your notes, which is really a way of saying, you know, you think about early compute, you had all these little bits and pieces of information that were on your computer and you, you know, you needed something to synthesize it into one place. Chat GPT or these these models on AI are doing a similar thing where you can, you know, I have lots of things right now that are about, you know, um, supply chain management in my notes. You know, if I put them all in one place and it 
and be more organized. So it's maybe that's where I'm like, it, it can make us be better humans. If it can help us facilitate our thought process better and help us guide into more information and the information flow, which we've really been, and it'll make us feel like the last 30 years we're just a Petri dish that we were just getting started on. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens. That is if we don't do stupid stuff and crush it like we like mm -hmm. to do with technology often. Have you heard anything on the regulatory side or any interest in Congress about uh, these technologies? Yes. So that's where we get to the West Coast versus East Coast thinking is, you know, basically AI has been around for a long time where it's just it's really hitting its stride. And so that's when Washington likes to walk in and start messing with it. Right. So mm -hmm. um, there are many things that there will be concerns over. I mean, the one thing I just came from the Consumer Electronics Show and everything was a robot. Right. There are lots of robots. And so you're like, is this like what what you think about the labor market like i i checked into a hotel completely on a kiosk um they immediately sent me a text message so i could you know the concierge ivy who said no to everything i asked for by the way um <laughs> you know you get to a stage where it's a little like i love the efficiency when it works i also had the case this last fall where i got caught in this element of between machine learning and bureaucracy is a terrible place to be. Mm -hmm. it, it very rarely works in your favor because I didn't put information in accurately and the ML kicked my, uh, their visas, I was at uh, you know, a visa issue. So they um, go into a foreign country. So then it put me to the bottom of the pile and then I couldn't get the attention of a bureaucrat to get it back up on top even though I was standing at the airport trying to change countries. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be things that we're going to have to work out. That's just a baseline thing with government. The other thing is going to be trying to kill the baby way too early because they don't like what they are concerned about the outcome coming rather than waiting to see like we do with most laws. It, we are not going to go with the precautionary principle because it'll not let it get forward. We want to see the cool stuff that AI can do and then figure out the, the corner cases where we're like, that's not cool. And then, you know, how do we decide that we're going to manage that going forward? Does it have to be a law? Is it a regulation? Is it a best practice by industry? Is it a best practice by human nature? Like we just decide certain things in society we are not okay with. And so we have a lot of those decisions in front of us when it comes to AI. So you mentioned you were just at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, big annual event where all the latest and greatest technologies are shown off. Anything particularly uh, exciting or noteworthy that you saw there? I, so I was trying to decide what I was going to write about coming out of it. And I'm a veteran. I love CES. I've been 20 years. I went last year when there was not that many people there, but it was great because as, as Jim, there, one of their media people said, he says, no, but this is from, it's so COVID friendly. I'm like, it's 50% of the people are here, but yeah, you can actually see more things. And I think they were actually selling more because it wasn't like the looky-loos like me just wanting to ask a million questions. I wasn't going to buy anything. <laughs> uh, lots of screens always. Every year you go in, you're like the, the, and the good news is that you've got the trickle down on this where somebody, Samsung's always got these amazing screens and all these companies that come out of Asia that, you know, they're so clear and crisp. What's so funny is you leave there and then you go wait for a friend in a bar and like you can barely see the television and it's so small and you're like, this seems crazy. How can you even bother? You can't watch sports on that. Um, so there are lots of screens, lots of folding screens. Everybody was very big on not just the folding phone that you see Samsung show off a lot. They had a folding tablet. There were several companies that had a folding tablet and one had a, like a tablet extender. Yeah, I, I mean, I always worry how quickly those things are going to break. Um, <laughs> Lots of interesting, uh, I said, I kind of felt like I was a combination of a car show, a medical device show, and then robot land. I mean, their robots were trying to make my life a lot easier. But the you're definitely seeing um, money getting put into the fact that we are an aging population. China is definitely an aging population. So the idea to age in place, um, not have to leave, and technology being able to figure out and how to do metrics on your 
whatever your your medical issue is and be able to mm-hmm. uh, get that to your doctor without having to be in a hospital. So that saves on costs as well as not having to be so um, evasive. So you see a lot more things where you won't have to do. They can do an EKG now while you laying down on a version of a mattress rather than having to put all the wires in. So um, I think that's all probably on a, a good path in, in different things. One thing I thought was, I had to ask this guy, I'm like, what is this? Why are you here? He had a, an insert for your shoe and it had a um, SIM card in it. And it was for people that might have dementia or Alzheimer's that they're like, look, if they're going to forget their phone and if they wander, they're going to wander off Bluetooth. So you need to use that SIM card to be able to, you know, basically keep them you know, near you, hopefully, and, and know where they are. And then I loved one company um, actually put their devices for the aging and pets all in one place, which I thought they could have been a little more sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. But it was the same technology is what they were. Basically. And I never thought about how animals um you have to be careful which uh, level of the spectrum you use when you use um, tagging on pets because they can hear things that we can't. Oh, that that's really interesting. And yeah, that, like you should not air tag your dog. You go into the Apple Store, they tell you not to air tag your your animal because that that particular level is very harmful to the hearing. Hmm, interesting. And yeah. I just a, a great note I think to bring our discussion to a and end on really great application and demonstration of the trade-offs in technology and the aging in place and the ability to, I'll just use the word, track people. And when mm-hmm. we're talking about putting a SIM card in someone's shoes, that goes beyond using air tags to track people. That is incredibly invasive, but it's also so powerful, so useful, so potentially important and beneficial to many in society. And it demonstrates perfectly so many of the challenges of technology. Right, and best of intentions, and then somebody will do something creepy with it. But um, please, <laughs> hopefully they will stay on the best of intention side, because that's what I think most people, when they're creating their technology, are trying to do things to help humanity. It's the humans that do bad things with technology. Yes, it's always us. Until the technology gains sentience, and we have uh, Terminator and all of that stuff, but we're not at Skynet yet. Not yet. We're getting closer. Yeah. Well, Shane, uh, thank you. Uh, great, great to uh, talk and catch up. And, Absolutely. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person again one of these days and uh, next time that we talk. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.